everybody, St. Paul here. Welcome to episode 24 of Music on the Run. It is fall, full foliage here in Minnesota. Today, it's all about the apples and the pumpkins. And my guest is an incredible drummer, educator. I like to think of him as a philosopher. Steve Gould is next on Music on the Run. Enjoy. Before we get started here, do me a favor, wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donny Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey, everybody. St. Paul here. Welcome to episode 24 from the Peterson Family Basement. Yeah, we're down here. We got a rehearsal happening because uh, I got a, a gig with my brothers and sisters little rock and roll gig from the jazz family anyway so it's uh, like a tornado went off down here but we're having a bunch of fun but now it's time to do another episode my next guest is a drummer and educator originally from minneapolis now living in arizona he's played with everyone from sarah borellis and I'm, i hope i said her name correctly of course i know who she is she's a killer killer artist ben rector to all city to Corey wong he was the musical director at Christ's Church in the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. And he is on faculty at Grand Canyon University in Arizona Christian University. Welcome, my friend, whose pocket is as huge as his heart, Mr. Steve Gould. Hey, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> you are Thank you, an early Thank you for that riser. introduction. Jeez, uh, yeah, course. man. Seven, 7 a.m. out here. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've got kids, so it makes I get out of bed early. It's all right. How old are your kids? Uh, my daughter, Betty, is 15, and oh. my uh, other daughter, Susie, is going to be 11. So you're right in the thick of it, aren't you? And ladies and gentlemen, yeah. that was Steve Gould, everybody. He's gone. <laughs> <Are> you- <laughs> Sorry, the, al- the alarm was going off. Oh, well, it's Thursday, but- which means it's garbage day, so if... If you hear the lovely tones of people backing up, that's what's going on around here today. My, it's, it's my alarm telling me that I have a podcast interview with Paul Peterson. Oh, is that right? Well, <laughs> here we are. We actually made it. So you you grew up in Minneapolis, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was born in Burbank, California, in, in Los Angeles. And then when I was 10, we moved to Minnesota. My dad was a pastor and wow. pastored a church in Southern California and then was invited to pastor a church in in the Midwest. And here we are, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years old. We're, we're now moving across the country. It's a totally different situation on a bunch of fronts, right? Like not just the winter, but also like my parents would now let me ride my bike to the movie theater on my own, which they would never have done in Southern California. But now that we're in a, a suburb of Minneapolis, they're like, yeah, it's fine. It's safe out here. It's a different, different kind of a place to live. Wow. And I, was, I remember being like, Whoa, really? That okay. Let's, that's great. We got like we got a snowmobile, and um, all of a sudden, like I guess I can't go to the ocean anymore. I can't go like surfing or anything. But all my friends go to the 
the lake in the summertime. And it was like, it was a huge shift in lifestyle that I was very happy about. And then, then I found music and okay. So the rest is history as far as playing music. However, I'm, I'm just saying all this to say like, shout out to Minneapolis because it wasn't until I started touring a lot at age 30, 29, that I realized what kind of music scene I had grown up in right. and how rich, vibrant and inspiring the people around me in the music scene in Minneapolis were. So 18 year old, 19 year old Steve, even 24 year old, 25 year old Steve, it's just a endless fuel tank for motivation and um, artistic expression in Minneapolis music. And uh, you know, like, Moving from LA to the Midwest, you think like, oh, if you were going into music, you you moved the wrong direction. And I'm like, nah, I, I'm <laughs> right. re I'm really glad it happened that way. It's a secret, man. We're not supposed to tell anybody. We want to keep the roof oh, whoops. out. Yeah? Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't you didn't go from uh, you know hanging out, going to high school, right to touring with all these great names that I uh, uh, just butchered, unfortunately. Uh, no. But, uh, so tell me about your journey of getting to that spot because I think it's fascinating. Well, yeah. That's, uh, thanks for asking about that. I, I, by the time I got through high school, I was, you know, hook, line and sinker sold on being a musician. Like I'm just, I'm all in, I love playing music, but I graduated in 1998 from high school and there's, there's no social media. Right. There's, there's no like, even general expectation that a freelance musician job is an option. Like I, I've got no idea that that kind of thing exists. I just know that I love playing drums and maybe someday I'll be in a band that's famous enough that people will buy our records or something like that. Um, but the idea of being a hired gun would be like what I've turned out to do as far as a career path within music. I didn't know that was even feasible. So I didn't set out to do that. Uh, I went to Bible school in Minneapolis. I went to Bethel university. I got a degree in theology. I graduated from that in 2002. Uh, and thinking to myself like, okay, I probably got to get a real job now. Meanwhile, during those years at Bethel, I had gone from working at guitar center to not having to work at guitar center because I was playing so many gigs around town mm. and, and teaching a lot of private lessons. So, you know, graduating from college, uh, I got married at that point and I just thought, yep, time to enter the workforce. And then I looked at my life as a drum teacher and playing gigs and like, Oh wait, this is actually a better thing for me to be doing right now. When my first daughter was born, I thought, okay, now I definitely got to get a real job. Kids will Except, make you do that, right? It makes you take a little look at your life and go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, it kind of makes you go, I'm an adult now and I must, this must yeah. not be a real job or whatever. But Betty, Betty came along and I was only 24 at the time. And yeah. yeah, I thought, okay, being a drummer doesn't work when you have like a real family or whatever. And then turns out I still had a lot of students and a lot of gigs more so than when I graduated, things were snowballing and it was like, well, it's done to give up on this. I'll, I'll just keep doing this because this income is actually substantial. And then when Susie was born a few years later, it was kind of the same thing. I had had a bit of a crisis um, 
Susie was born when I was 29. And I remember when I was 27 or 28, some of the work had dried up. Some of the freelance work was just not coming the way that it had when I was 24, 25. And I had a lot of drum students, but I, we had some debt. And I remember sitting with my parents asking them like, do you, do you guys think maybe I should just like wrap it up with drumming and go to, go to seminary or something like, I, I don't know. And my dad, he, he had been a pastor his whole life. His dad was a pastor. My uncles and aunts were pastors. And he says to me like, Steve, you're so good at the drums. You've enjoyed it for so long. You've spent so much time developing that. I don't think you should just throw that away mm-hmm. because you're having a tough stretch. Stick it, stick it out. Uh, keep pursuing what you want with this instrument, which at that point now, you know, late twenties, I was old enough to realize like, Oh, a professional freelance career is, is viable. And I mean, it exists, I guess maybe that's something I could do. And my dad was like, just keep going for it. I think there's a lot of future in that for you. So I did. And then, yeah, by the, by the time I was mid thirties, then, then things were like really hauling. And I had, you know, made those connections that took me into the national circuit and whatnot, but it, it was a, it was a minute there where, where like through my, the bulk of my twenties, I was just playing at local churches in Minneapolis and playing in small kind of like hobby studios, not even like the real studios that are in the twin cities, uh, playing in, in bars with cover bands and teaching, teaching private lessons, just kind of like scrambling really to make all of that work. The, the scheduling Put them all together and required. make one good one, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was working, I was working my ass off dude. and, and then now looking back on it, I'm so glad that period happened because I had to dig pretty deep into, you know, my, my knowledge of various genres and how the drum set applies in a, a soul band versus how it applies when I'm playing in a jazz trio at a restaurant or whatever. I had to dig pretty deep into my ability to learn music and learn it quickly and then be able to pivot because I've got this gig on Friday and a totally different gig on Saturday or whatever. Uh, and I had to dig deep into my just general work ethic as to how much of my time I was going to spend doing frivolous things like video games versus how much time I'm going to like put intentionally toward developing my craft and um, teaching students and while also being a dad. So there, there came a time that when there was a shift, a reckoning, you, and was it that conversation with your parents and your wife at that time? Was that what made you go, I am going to do the work. I know what this is. And did you have to, did you have to make a plan or, or did it kind of just come naturally as you were going through this shift? There's, there's not a plan that took place at that point. Yeah. Like, there was never a plan that okay. I, I feel like I'm talking to a lot of younger drummers these days who let's say like, I just turned 40 recently. Happy so birthday. You catching up to me, Thank man. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming for you, Paul. Uh, Keep these, coming. Uh, man. I'm still always going to be older than you. These, uh, you're right. That's how that works. Phew. Um, these younger guys on, you know, social media, Instagram, Twitter, reach out to me and say like, man, how can I, um, I really want to do what you're doing. And, and many times they're, they're surprised when they hear me say like, when I was your age, I didn't want to do what I'm doing. I just didn't know that I 
could do what I'm doing. And I, I didn't have any strategic plan. So when, you know, when they say, how do, what steps were you taking at age 20 in order to get where you are now? I was like, uh, the only thing I was doing, the only thing I was doing was trying to be as good at the instrument as possible. I was not intentionally networking with anyone. I was not, I didn't go to music school. I didn't even, um, move to a specific city. I was just practicing all the time, playing all the time, accepting every invitation to join other people in playing because that to me felt like the, that's the business card. That's school like the, too. Is yes. It's school, school and it's marketing. It's yeah. It's on the job training. And it's work it's, ethic. You're taking your yeah. craft seriously. And you know, it's funny. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I see, and I play with a lot of young people, especially in worship situations where I just want to, help them and, and say a couple of words and give them some something to go back and, and think about because there's room to grow. Let's just put it that way. And yeah. to see uh, <laughs> you mentoring these young people and, and, and actually taking the time to respond the way you're responding to these people with these inquiries is so cool and so vital to giving back, but that's the kind of guy you are, but it's important to share that information. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thanks for, thanks for pointing that out. I, I do spend a lot of time investing in younger generation of music musicians. And it's mostly because I, I believe in the power of music in society. I want uh, musicianship to be something that is persistent in all of our you know, music circles, whether it's the Minneapolis scene or the Los Angeles scene or the Phoenix scene or whatever. Like I, the young guys, man, I want them to know how, how much good is involved in all of this. Uh, and then I remember back to being that age myself and kind of like longing for someone to tell me what to do about it. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily have uh, helpful mentors at that point. Um, they, they didn't abound. There wasn't like examples everywhere of how to do what I, what I was feeling in my spirit to do. Like, I just want to play drums all the time. And like, there was actually a lot of people at that point that were discouraging me saying like, ah, music is a hard, hard career. Like, ah, oh, man, I don't think, I don't think you want to tour. And I'm like, no, no, I do want to tour. I, it sounds like, it sounds like you just don't like it. So you're telling me that I, I probably won't like it, but I, you know, the, the, the standouts, uh, as far as examples and role models at that time were Dave King. Yeah. Who has been a guest with. on this show before, by the way, he's, he's, he's just the man. Amazing. And he was such an important link in the chain for me in those years. I started studying with him when I was 19 yeah. and then, uh, you know, that continued through the rest of my college career. He wasn't affiliated with my college. I was, I was studying with him privately, uh, just in his teaching space in downtown St. Paul. But his, his words and his role modeling of what being a freelance drummer was, like he, he was doing the thing that I am doing now uh, for the first time. I'd never seen anybody like play rock and play jazz, play in studios and play live and like hustle around town. At, at, at one point, he was giving me free lessons 
in exchange for uh, driving him to his gigs because he and his wife at the time only had one car and and there were like some transportation issues. Oh, that's like, classic. Steve, Steve, what uh, what do we do? Like a couple lessons a week on the house, and then you like drive me around a little bit coming up here, and that that lasted for maybe five or six months. That's of, unbelievable. Of, the barter system is alive and well. Well, and again, to, to your point about school, man, that was school. The hang. Watching the hang him, was school. Yes. Watching him play with this band, watching him play with this other band. In both situations, I was not old enough to be allowed into the venue, but I was because I was with him. Mm-hmm. And and then after the show, we hang out with the, all the people that he was playing, and I listen to the way they have conversation and how they interact and all that kind of stuff. And then we're in the car on the way back to his apartment, and we're listening to tunes in the car. And um, I mean... I got such a robust education from him. Uh, and it was all in this vein of freelance drummer. So I guess back to your question, like there was a, a point where I decided where things changed for me and I got a little more serious about it. And it was that, it was that late twenties, a, a little bit of a crisis. Like, should I, can I even do this? Is this even possible? And having my parents, my dad, you know, lifelong pastor and whatnot, having him say, yeah, I think you can do it. And you, you just should keep pushing. Wow. I was like, okay, okay. You know what? All right, fine. I will. And, and that was the moment where I think I committed because even through my twenties, after having studied with Dave early twenties and into my mid twenties, hustling around town in, in Minnesota and like able to make ends meet with the income stream, but having to really work my, my ass off and then, uh, like always wondering, like, is this going to last? Am I just doing this for another year because I can? And like, but this is the last year that I'll do it. Uh, Boy, is and, that the age old question in a freelance musician's life? What's next? Is this going to I, I still, I still feel that. I mean, I still feel that now. <laughs> okay. You too. Hey. Great. The, You'd think the, that, that would go um, away at some point in your life, but guess what? It doesn't. What, what hasn't, uh, what hasn't persisted is self doubt. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I think 27 year old me was like, am I good enough to do this? Mm. And then that conversation, with my dad tilted me into like, you know what? I'm going to make sure that I am good enough to do this, but that doesn't mean an opportunity is still going to be there. Uh, or it doesn't mean that I won't, you know, trip and fall on my face. So like the, the first like real big gig that I got was, uh, I guess it's not, even technically real big, but you know, all those guys from the blenders. Oh, sure. Uh, of course. So killer, that, uh, that by the was, way, that's a killer, uh, uh, acapella band here in, based in Minneapolis slash Fargo. For those of you who don't know, go check out their records as they're great. Right. They've, they've been regionally touring as a vocal quartet, uh, doing Christmas shows every year for, you know, 25 years or something like that. And for a long time they did, they, they just would do their show to tracks. It's just the four of them on stage singing. And then I got to know Darren, uh, who's kind of their like musical director in a way. Um, he's running a studio in Farmington and was hiring me to play on some tracks that he was producing. And, and he's spitballing. He's like, man, the blenders have never had a live band. And we kind of want to really like up our show this year. What do you think about, being our drummer and and like we'll, we'll get a bass player and a guitar player too like we'll have like an actual live band instead of just tracks right and uh and i was like 
Yeah, really? Oh man. Like, uh, <laughs> like you guys are playing like theaters and we're going to, we're going to go like on tour, right. you know, like I, I hadn't, I had never done that. I was, I, I was probably 29 when that happened. Um, working with them led to me working with the band go fish, yeah. which was like a Christian's, uh, a Christian kids music kind of thing, like the wiggles, but for the church. Right. And they were, they were really big uh, across the whole country. So that was the first time that I was on a tour bus and we're, uh, you know, driving all over the place, uh, playing these shows. The, the, the shows were usually like 2000, 3000 people and 80% of them are under the age of 10. So it was like a, <laughs> dude, it was ballistic. Like, yeah, yeah. It was, it, the energy was, it was really fun actually. I they, it they was. Had a ton of, kind of cool production value with, you know, like these lasers and uh, confetti cannon, these like huge beach balls that we would get up and kick around in between oh, songs. Like, it was, it was super fun. Uh, that led to me getting in Owl City uh, oh, when I was 30, when I was 31. And, and like that, um, that series of gigs, uh, Blenders, Go Fish, Owl City, that came kind of like once a year there. And all three of them were the biggest thing that I had done up to that point. Sure. in a row and to, to your to your comment about just like self-doubt and whatnot like that man each one of those gigs i was happy to get and every time i thought am i going to be able to cut it because i've never actually played ball at this at this level right like i've i've never been in this league so am, am i gonna like I, I mean i think i can cut it i'm i've done all the work that i know to do uh, but I've never been in this environment and maybe there's some variable involved here that I don't know about. And I'm going to find myself to be totally inadequate in that area. Uh, but it turned out in each instance that that didn't happen. And, and, and by the time I had gotten, but by, by the time I'd gone through the Owl city gig and those guys were so pleased with my playing, I was kind of like, Oh, I guess I do have what it takes. So when Sarah Burrell reached out to me after the Owl city thing and I had, you know, now, now she's for sure the bigger artist compared to Owl City. And I mean, just like side note, when I was in Owl City, we would play festivals and stuff and the other drummers in the catering area or the musicians, you know, we'd be meeting each other. Like, who do you play with? And I'm like, oh, Owl City. And they're like, oh, that guy uses a live drummer. Weird. I thought it was just like computers and stuff. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the live drummer. Right. Versus when I got into Sarah Bareilles' band and I'd be in that same situation. Who are you playing with? Like, oh, I'm, I play drums for Sarah Bareilles. And these other drummers who were playing with other, like, Hugh Garsh are like, you do? Oh, my yeah. God, that's my dream gig. Yeah, 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 like the, yeah. The difference between, like, even just within the freelance player industry, like, I got a whole new level of cred because people know Sarah's picky and people know Sarah is amazing. And when I got the chair in her band that like that changed things for me I bet. quite a bit in terms of reputation. Uh, but that was also like simultaneously the first time that I walked into a gig with a little bit of confidence. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm now three layers deep into getting like larger national music industry opportunities. And every time I've exceeded the expectations of these people that are hiring me. So now I'm in a little bit even deeper with someone like Sarah, but I think I can hang now, right. which that, helps, that feeling it does help, man. Well, it's like, I'm playing off. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a difference between confidence and cockiness. One you can right. use, the other one might lose you the gig. Yeah, and I think it, 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 to, I guess to jump on that point, I would say the distinction in my head is like 
how I would choose to play versus how I would choose to posture. Like if I'm, it's like cockiness is me trying to make you think I'm cool. Confidence is me trying to play as well as I can play and believing that I can. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And like that, like that's what the artist is looking for. The artist is looking for me to play offense with my instrument, like to, to like really like give the music as much as I can give it. And my confidence keeps me from being hesitant and kind of like mousy about that. Like, right. Uh, hey man, come on! Like, hit the drums like you mean it. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, it turns out I'm good enough to be here, but I'm hesitant because right. I'm not I'm scared. Confident, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, versus yeah. like, arrogant versus arrogant guy who walks in the room and the task isn't to play well. The task is to like make you think I'm cool, or or make you feel small or be condescending. That's, that or, sounds you know. like a gig I used to have about 35 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just <laughs> okay. saying. <laughs> do you look Fair cool enough. or do you play well? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, that's that's a very very interesting point that you you bring up. What yours is is real. That's real. The rest of it is all a front, right? You know, it's it's what you wear, what you do, how you act, and the other one is how you play, how you react, how you make the artist feel, yeah. how the hang is, and that and you, is what and you can't. can't you can't fake that. We're going to break away for a second here so I can tell you about a couple really important items. Number one, we have a brand new highlights page on YouTube. We want you to check it out. It's especially made by our intern, Jake Miller, for people who don't have quite enough time to sit through the entire video podcast. It's a great way to catch up on some great tidbits of information from all of our guests. You're going to have to search for it, I'm afraid, just simply because we need more subscribers on there in order for us to get a custom URL. But it's Music on the Run Highlights. You know what else is on there, you guys? A brand new feature that we've been doing strictly on Fridays. It's called Funk Friday. Got to have a little funk for your weekend. We feature great musicians, some former guests, some future guests, and it's a little one to two minute vignette of us jamming and funking out. And it's a great way to kick off your weekend. It's called Funk Fridays, every Friday. Check it out. It's on the Music on the Run Highlights Reel. And of course, you'll find it on Facebook and Instagram as well. All right, let's get back to the interview. You can't fake that. Right. That's what I was just going to say. You can't fake that stuff. And, and that to your point about even like playing around the twin cities these days and coming into contact with the younger crowd. And you want to, you want to come alongside and be like, Hey guys, you got a little bit of work to do. I was, I was actually talking recently with, um, my friend, Gabe, Gabe Hagen is his name. Uh, he used to live in Minneapolis. He's now out here in the West coast as well. He, he's the guy that took over for me in Owl city when I left that band. Gabe became the Owl City drummer, but he's done a handful of other things. We were talking about Instagram and the way that, okay, because of social media and because of the way the professional realm of musicians, like the guys who actually have the goods, the guys who can play, the guys who have the confidence, all that stuff, as though, as that level of the industry engages with social media, it gives the opportunity for younger guys to see how the talk is talked mm. in a way that they couldn't before like right. like when 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 i was 20 i learned how the pros talk by hanging around the pros 
Right. And if I didn't have an opportunity to hang around the pros, I wouldn't have learned it. Mm-hmm. At this point, the younger crowd is learning how the pros talk by watching them on Instagram. And what they're seeing is like, you know, the way I would refer to a rod symbol or, or the kinds of gear that I like, or even like the way I would talk about um, expectations on a gig or whatever, you know, I'm doing a podcast or something. There's just a lot of opportunity for the younger folks to learn about the culture of professional music, but nothing within that culture necessarily shows them that they're not good enough at playing yet. Yeah. So like these younger guys are absorbed, they're absorbing the speech patterns and the attitudes of pro-level players, <laughs> and they don't have any chops to back it up, right? Yeah. Except it makes it harder. This is what Gabe was pointing out. It makes it harder and harder for us on the, the professional level to discern the difference because when a young guy rolls in talking to talk, he, he knows all the lingo. He knows all the vernacular. He's got the attitude. I think to myself, like, oh, this dude must have the goods. And then he starts playing and it's like, whoa, he does not. This guy sucks. Or, uh, I mean, I should be and more how do you that. broach like, this, that this subject? This kid's got a long way to go still. But right. How do you broach he, that he's, subject? He's got a long way someone, to go yeah. still, but he pulled the wool over my eyes yeah. with uh, his lingo and his, uh, his, his vernacular and his attitude. They made me think that he had chops that he doesn't really have. The younger generation knowing how to speak to speak and talk to talk and, and everything is showing up and we giving them the benefit of the benefit out of the doubt that they can play. And all of a sudden they sit down. It's like, Ooh, I mean, dude, before, before social media came along, you didn't know how to talk the talk. Right. Unless you had been around people who did it and you wouldn't be around them if you couldn't play. That's so when true. Somebody, you wouldn't when get somebody the nod or the up, invite. Exactly. So when someone rolls up and they've got the vernacular and they've got the lingo and they've got the attitude, it's, we're not too f- far removed from the years where like that meant they probably had the chops. And now social media has given essentially, and I don't, I don't say, think this is necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, a tough Part before challenge the horse. now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's difficult to discern who's who because somebody yeah. comes in and they've got, they've got the gear, they've got the attitude, they've got the, the vernacular, you know, they've got the whole, like even just like insider, like idioms and uh, idiosyncrasies about how to communicate about certain things. And it's like, Oh, you called, you called it that, that means you probably know what, what you're doing. And then they sit down to play. Like, they do not know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so how do we, yeah. Like how do we, as the, the guys who, and I, you know, I, I want to be somewhat gentle about how, the level to which I congratulate myself on being a professional. Right. But like, here I am, I'm at this level, I've done these things mm-hmm. and I have this relationship with the instrument. How do I show the younger guys, uh, that that's what matters as opposed to just the things that they see on my social media, the way that I speak and the way that I look and, and that kind of thing. Like right. I, I remember having, uh, flight cases for the first time. Uh, like the kind of cases, you know, like ATA cases. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I got a bunch of those from like Goodwill and other places spray painted my name on the side, like, you know, spray painted them black, got my name on the side and all this kind of stuff because I was like scrambling for ways to communicate to people when I showed up to a gig, that I meant business. Yeah. And so, and so I, yeah, I remember, you know, rolling into that, that blenders tour that I mentioned and I had 
really nice drums in cases that said my name on the side. Right. And the, the production manager on the tour was kind of like, Oh, what's up, dude? Like, Hey, like he, he you know, he was kind of like, Oh, this kid is pretty young, but he's, he apparently knows what he's doing. And, and I, I mean, I, I did in the sense that I had done all the work as a player and I just didn't right. know how to get into the game of the networking thing. And I guess Instagram in a way kind of like gives all these 19, 20 year old drummers or musicians. It's kind of like giving them, it's like they've all got cases with their name on the side and, and can barely play. It's like, Oh shoot. Now that's not, that's not an indication that we can use anymore as to whether or not you're trustworthy. Yeah. It's an interesting predicament is all I'm saying. But here's what I've seen you do with your Instagram and your website is that, you're talking real to these people, just like you're talking real right now. And yes, you share with them your techniques, why you love, you know, the, the symbols, maybe over the kick or whatever, different things that you've brought up. That's beautiful that they can get this knowledge, but the next thing is for them to apply that to the yes. basic one-on-one, their relationship with, the groove or the click track or whatever the case may be the their uh, uh how how they can uh subdivide for those of you who are not musicians uh, this is might you can take a nap for the next 5 seconds here but the, it's so important to us the accuracy of the subdivision and when you're going for a fill or whatever the case may be that it's consistent on a certain level those things mm-hmm. to me really are so important and can make it a not a fun experience for someone like myself if if that's not happening right to me that says you're young or you don't care right and that pisses me off more than anything uh, you don't care yes. how can you not okay let me give you the benefit of the doubt here maybe you just don't know but then i go is it your job steve to tell these people this that 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 it's They've got a little bit more work to do. How do we as mentors now at this point help and not insult this, these kids who, who may just need a little bit more playing help along the way? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I, as a lifelong, uh, well, for my whole career, I've been teaching private lessons uh, and boy, all that teaching experience, I can tell you there's, there's oftentimes guys showing up to the lesson without any intention to learn something from me, they are booking a lesson with me so that they can show me how good they already are. And they're not as good as they think they are, but they don't know that. And so they're not actually prepared to listen to me, tell them how to get better. Uh, so, you know, as, as a teacher, I guess even like as a business plan, (laughs) I'll put it this way. When I was 19 years old and I'm teaching drum lessons, uh, I just wanted, I just needed the money. Mm-hmm. And so when a kid showed up and hadn't done his practicing, I would never, like, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly imagine tell, like kind of yelling at that kid and telling him to go home and stop wasting my time, which right. is the, the attitude that sometimes comes from like the crotchety old piano teacher lady. Who's like, you didn't practice, like stop, right. wait, whatever. Like, right. like I'm never going to, I'm never going to do that to one of my students when I'm 19 because I need the money for the lesson. So mm-hmm. I found myself engaging in this almost like campaign to get them to practice. 
like like uh, to try to be persuasive about the importance of practice as right. opposed to like make, making them feel obligated. You know, I was trying to inspire them and that, right. that I've carried that, that, that distinction into the rest of my teaching and even the rest of my adulthood now as I, as I find myself in mentoring moments, like there's a huge difference between presenting an obligation to someone and making them feel obligated to do something versus inspiring them to do it. Like, like one kind of comes from the top down, like pushing on them. Like you, you've got to submit the other one kind of like lights the fire underneath them. And like, you know, there's something really cool that you're missing out on here. Uh, and and like in inviting them into it. It's your, it's on the approach. Exactly. And I've, I've, I've had people show me both. I've had teachers and mentors who were just kind of like presenting me with a long list of obligations. Uh, and they're kind of condescending as they do so. And then I've had teachers, uh, like Dave King, for example, who presented me with like inspiration after inspiration. He's just, he continually was lighting a fire under me that made me want to get better and, and, and want, it made me want what I saw that he had. And so that, that approach has become my plumb line for how to engage these younger crowds. Like, okay, I'm just going to inspire these guys. I'm going to try to figure out how to inspire them. Cause I think that's, what's going to get the progress that, um, it seems to me they still need to, to tackle. So you, you say on your website, you consider it an honor and a privilege to be a musician. Yes. Why is that? Ah, uh, that's a great question, Paul. Um, here's a, just an anecdotal example. When I was in Owl City, that music was so positive, like uplifting, mm-hmm. like just the, even the aesthetic of it, like the synth, the synth tones and the beats, they're all really like happy. Right. And these fans, man, they were so excited to see Adam, Adam Young, the front guy for Owl They were so excited to see him to see the show, they have so much attachment to the music. Okay. That's not really present in, I guess, I don't know what your church experience is like, but I, I grew up playing in church and oftentimes in church playing music is like trying to, it's like the worst audience because <laughs> everyone, is, everyone's got their, everyone's got their arms folded. They're all kind of like waiting to find something to complain about. And interesting. I mean, Dude, it's, it gets a little dark, right? And like, yeah. I, you know, I, I have a lot of love for the church, having grown up in it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people from my community are super tied up in that. But uh, as far as my experience of playing in church, it, I'm, I'm not, I can tell that I'm not giving the audience anything that they necessarily want. Uh, it's like everybody, it, it, a lot of those folks are in church because they feel dragged to church and actually want to be there or whatever. And they're, they're not singing because they're pumped. Uh, those Owl City shows in particular, I was noticing how happy these audiences were to be receiving what we were giving them. Right. And and how much better off they were at the end of the night as a mm. result of that experience. Right. And it, it, it started to set into me, it, it started to set in this deep gratitude that I could be the delivery vehicle. Like, like that what I do for a living makes people better. Uh, and I, and I'm not saying makes them better as in like me as a drum teacher, I'm talking about like just the experience of seeing live music and the way great music, great art itself will, will change you for the better. Like right. go, going to, you know, a U2 show 
is like a, is, is a spiritual experience. Mm. And, and that band gives their audiences night after night a huge shot of every positive chemical that could course through us as human beings. You know, yeah. like it, it's, it's such an adrenaline, serotonin, dopamine, whatever kind of just like bomb that goes off and rush. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and everyone is just like, Oh, thank you for that. Right. And I'm, I'm, I was watching those out city audiences do that night after night and, and, and just thinking like, man, I'm so lucky. Uh, this is a great thing to do regardless of whether I'm getting paid and for me to get paid for me to make my living going around, giving people these positive experiences via art. Uh, I'm, I'm honored. Right. Right. But that's, that's such an important uh, choice that you've made. Not everybody mm. looks at it that way. Sure. Really. You can wake up on the bed and go, Oh, got to get on the plane. I got to get my, I got to tune my drums and blah, 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 whatever the list is. But you seem like the kind of guy who wakes up and goes, let's go. Come on. You seem pumped. You yeah. seem like you're not satisfied. It seems like you're always looking for the next thing to do to make yourself and your life and other people's lives better. Is that true? Oh, I, I hope it is true. It is. It, it's what I intend. Like what you just described. It makes me feel good that you're saying that unsolicited because that's what I want to be true about my, about me. Feel <laughs> that's that. the kind of guy. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I like, I, I mean, it. I, I'm glad you feel it. Cause that's what I'm trying to bring to the table. I think life is, um, a gift and there are struggles. <laughs> mm-hmm. We all, we all have various uphill battles that manifest in unique ways for each one of our unique selves. Right. So that this is, uh, it, it's not just a walk in the park. And I, I certainly as a, a white middle-class man, I have had far less challenges in my life experience than a lot of the other, uh, my fellow citizens. And, um, I guess I'm like, I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm grateful. I don't, I want to steward the, uh, the breath that I have every day. I want to, I want to be a good steward of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mostly I just am excited to see what's next. And am happy about that. So yeah, you're right. I get out of bed in the morning and I'm like, let's go. Like, uh, and then, you know, and then my car breaks down. Like recently my, um, the car that I'd gotten for my dad after my dad passed away, I was really like, uh, honored that my mom gave me his car and I'm, I've been driving it around for four years and the transmission went out. It was very like unforeseen, unexpected. Like all of a sudden my car doesn't move anymore. Like what's going on. And like the transmission is, going to cost way more than the car is worth and it's like well shoot i gotta i gotta say goodbye to this car now and i did not expect that and that brings a whole bunch of functional challenges to my immediate moment or whatever not to mention this entire pandemic and the way the music industry has been impacted but i'm not i'm not saying that i i mean i got a lot of challenges in my life i'm just telling you that like i am really excited to be alive uh my loved ones um, and then like the experiences that I have playing music and all of it just feels like such a, a gift to me. So I, I'm, I'm ready to, to do it, to do more of it each day as, and, and hopefully, hopefully then also to maybe participate in helping other people to feel that life is a gift. Right. And if that, 
if that exists in some form of teaching or mentoring or whatever, like, okay, great. Or maybe it's just that if I perform well enough, this folks, uh, th this audience will feel that life is, uh, positive, you know, maybe, like maybe there's yeah. some version of my art that can maybe that's the only thing that helps other people feel this uh, positivity that I feel. Well, your art is you and the way you show up and, and people by listening to this, podcast will get a glimpse into who you are and will feel that that sunshine man because that's what it is I hope so that's what yeah. it is and that's what that's what it's all about and that's what this podcast is about Sh you know shed a little uh love uh and and insight into what it is to be a traveling musician and this will segue into you know now we're staying at home we have a little silver lining here to be able to hang out with our kids and our significant others and or whatever, but we're road dogs. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, true. Uh, you know, it's a difficult, strange year. And of course you being the guy you are, I'm sure you've found a lot of silver linings in this, but let's talk a little bit about you being on the road and in a typical year. What does that look like to you? How long are you usually gone? Is it quite a bit? Well, it's, it's, it's gone through phases, uh, in 2012 and 2013. Yeah. I was gone, uh, probably 200 days out of the 365, right? Like, so more than half the time I was away. Uh, that was, that was the peak of it. Um, in the past five years or so, it's been a little more like hundred, hundred days a year I'm gone, That's maybe like, 20. yeah. So it, but, but it's not, you know, it's not constant. There are legs of tour and then there's legs of being home. And you mentioned the, um, the church gig that I had there for, for the past five years, which I'm no longer in now, but I still have a great relationship with all those folks. And mm -hmm. that, that church was, was very open-handed toward letting me continue to do that road stuff was, but part of it was because my boss had done road stuff himself. And he knows even the guys who are really slamming it on the road, they're not gone all the time. Right. And uh, often you're, you're, you're gone for uh, only if, you know, it, you would be home for far more than you're gone, even though it's, it's, the traveling is a heavier schedule than the average citizen is accustomed to. Right. Maybe the average person leaves town for a few days once a month. So when I'm leaving town for a few days, like almost every week, uh, they're like, wow, how do you handle all that? It's like, not that big of a deal. I kind of, I kind of uh, group, you know, our family dynamic, like the, the rhythms that we had uh, when, when that was happening, you know, which hasn't happened for a while now. Uh, but when, when that was heavily going on, it's like everybody just kind of understood like, oh, dad's leaving again for a few days, like no problem. Or dad's leaving for four weeks. I'm like, okay, but like, oh, I'm, I'm still home a lot. And because I don't have a nine to five job, uh, like even the church gig, was, it was very like art, artist's hours. It means that I can, from the time my children were very little, I, I could be present for things that most uh, typical working adults aren't present for right. um, school lunches uh, yeah. visits or you know whatever kind of thing like that and and uh, it, that worked out just fine 
um, when, when I was traveling all the time, it didn't feel like I was traveling all the time. And I but that's about your partnership that you have with your family. And I'd like you to go into yeah. that too. Yes. Well, uh, from the very beginning, my, uh, who, who is now my ex-wife was supportive of the career path as opposed to combative toward the career path. Right. And that I owe her a huge debt of gratitude for that because I watched a lot of my friends really struggle with partners who were just not interested in the music life and made it really hard on them to go down that road while having to always kind of wrestle with their partner about whether or not that was going to continue. Kristen never put any of that energy on me, which was just incredible. Um, And then along come our kids. And at the time that Betty was born, I didn't have, you know, when I was born when I was 24, I didn't have much going on in, in any like national sense. So I, I was just kind of like stayed home dad. So there was like, right. The, the rhythm of our family started with me being the one raising the girls. Got it. <laughs> and so, so, so then there's like a different relationship that I have with Betty where upon, you know, she's like eight years old and now I'm kind of like traveling all the time. She doesn't have, just memories of her dad traveling all the time. All of her like really formative memories are just like her and I, she was just like, she, that kid was my sidekick. Uh, in fact, like, dude, it was great. I wouldn't change it for anything. I used to bring her to, uh, studio sessions that I was doing with, uh, like she'd post up in the control room on her little blanket, just like sitting there. And I'd be in, in the live room tracking and I'd check in with the engineer, like, Hey, how's Betty doing? And they're like, Oh, uh, forgot she was here. She's doing, she's just kind of looking at me and <laughs> like, uh, drag her along to dude. I did that. So I did that so much drag her along to, uh, rehearsals right. and like, just kind of set her up in the corner of the room mm-hmm. with her headphones. And, um, but that's and where they like, learn through osmosis, man. That's where they get it. Yeah. That's where they get the love for music yes. and their dad. Well, and that's where they also get the, uh, um, yeah, the, like, the feeling of being part of my life mm-hmm. instead of just someone that I'm supposed to take care of. It's like, no, no, no you get to come along. You're like, you, you get to be my sidekick, which is like, uh, um, those are great memories. Right. <laughs> those are really no great doubt. memories. No doubt. So Europe, you look like you're in good shape, man. Is there anything that you do besides Frisbee golf, which we'll get into uh, when you're on the road to stay in shape mentally physically because that's what's important to a lot of our listeners out there um i i just try to eat healthy yeah honestly like that's that's what i do like i I don't have an active uh like workout routine you know like try to do push-ups a lot or whatever right but um like basically i just i take care I, i pay very careful attention to what i put in my body which i think is something that our species as a whole is starting to perhaps learn more about than we did in the past. Like, uh, like, like there are repercussions. I mean, I've been, I've been reading and paying attention to even just regarding the pandemic, some, uh, at least theories about the way eating habits and even like farming habits, uh, with chemicals and pesticides and whatnot and how, 
how that can foster disease or foster the inability to fight disease right. within the body. And like mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of stuff is all really interesting to me all of a sudden. I definitely remember having headaches more often when I was in my twenties and eating McDonald's all the time. And like, like when I wanted a snack, I would have a bag of Skittles or something <laughs> like, and yeah, I you understand know, and like, those things. And then I remember my dad, my, I remember my dad even telling me like, you, you get headaches all the time because of how much sugar you eat. You, you need to not eat so much sugar. And I was just kind of like, Oh really? And and then like, you know, now at age 40, when my body doesn't work exactly the same as it did when I was 22, and I like, I can see and feel the difference when I eat well, right. When, 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 when I'm careful and intentional about what I put in, uh, it, it affects what comes out. And that, that really, um, that's, that's a big paradigm shift for me from at least just recent years. And you can do that when you're on the road now because the people are interested in having sure. healthy band members and, or you can make choices. I mean, it, again, it's like how much discipline yeah. do you have? that's yes that's a good way to say it paul like it's not about what's available it's about what my intentions are right right so what what's next for you my brother what what's keeping you busy during this pandemic and what can we look forward to hearing from you in the very near future well um i mean as far as what you can look forward to hear from me the the, la- the most recent tour that I did was with Matt Carney uh, in an acoustic setting. I was playing like a cajon and some shakers and we had uh, this fantastic songwriter and vocalist and keyboard player named Eli Teplin from Los Angeles. He And then Matt on acoustic guitar and vocal. And so just the three of us, no bass player, no like actual electric guitar or anything like that. Um, Eli's just playing a road. I'm playing perk. Matt's playing acoustic. And that we did three legs of that tour, uh, the end of 2019. And then the, the most recent one was February of 2020. And then, you know, world shuts down. There was talk of maybe additional legs of that tour, but that hasn't happened. However, Matt is releasing a live record from that tour, uh, oh, tomorrow. Great. Oh, great. So like that, so that, that's super exciting. I, I listened through to all the masters the other day to kind of like transported me back to that time when we yeah. were on those, on those shows. And uh, like, that's exciting. So as far as just like, the near future that's happening. I, I've also been uh, hopping from Phoenix over to Los Angeles a lot, uh, trying to take advantage of the the time right now where basically everybody's home, right? So networking with the the music industry in LA, and mm-hmm. you know, the, just kind of the increased amount of traffic that happens in the music scene there compared to in Phoenix. I've been um, just trying to like capitalize on all of those folks being home and I've got time to interface with them. And, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about relocating there, uh, permanently. Uh, and yeah. And, and, and just, uh, seeing what happens when I live in like a, a sizable music industry town, uh, cause I've never done that. Like mi- the music scene in Minneapolis is great, but as far as the amount of industry that's happening there, like tours that are leaving from there or, you know, television shows or whatever, like that, that's not really present the way it is in New York and LA. Sure. So yeah. being in LA and just kind of like tr- trying to play that game, uh, that's, that's where my sights are set currently. Got it. Got it. So do me a favor and give us your website and your drum, uh, uh, library website and all that. So, 
people can find out more about you and, and what, what you're up to. Sure, man. Well, it's just stevegould.com. If you want to like go to my personal website, uh, my last name, G O O L D kind of throws people cause G O U L D is the common one, but, right. um, Google. uh, and then the, the drum library.com is my lesson website. And that that's just kind of like a pet project of mine from a few years ago that I, I really enjoy, uh, thinking about how to do this instrument well and the way that that has affected my teaching methods over the years has caused me to arrive at a, you know, a few like unique conclusions about how to teach this thing. And so I, the, the drum library turned, turned into kind of like a running catalog. It's almost like a personal journal of how I think about my craft and I 25 bucks a month users access it. And then there's just this whole trove of video lessons that I put together, articles that I've written, uh, drum cams, like, like GoPro footage of me on a gig and me talking about my thought right. process and all of that. And, right. Uh, I use it heavily with my university students, especially now when we're not doing lessons in person, when it's all over Zoom. Right. But then I, I, I interact with, uh, users who have signed up that are all over the world. And, and uh, you know, like as soon as they, as soon as somebody signs up for the drum library, I, I have their email address and we start communicating directly just via email. And I, I point to a handful of things that I want them to pay attention to on the site that you can kind of take it nice. at your own pace. But a lot of those guys, we end up becoming buddies through it. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been pretty fun. So that's the drum library. And then, you know, obviously look me up on social media, just Steve Gould at Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Right. Man, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your life to, to hang out with us on music on the run has been, and I want to play with you again. Cause that those few times yeah, that we've gotten to do that have been so incredible. Your feel. That's what I said at the top of the show. Your pocket is as big as your heart. I mean, it is. And, oh, thanks and man. Really? I, I, Thank I, you for I really, saying that, Paul. you're a good man and you're a great drummer. And, uh, actually let me reverse that. You're a great man and a great drummer. So, and Thank you, sir. it's been a pleasure to, uh, to get you. to know you, man. And let's, Let's uh, keep in touch, and I wish you health, happiness, and uh, you know, keep always waking up with that uh, that sunny disposition, man. Because we all need that, and we feed off of that. So, bless you Word. for that, man. We appreciate that. Oh, uh, blessings to you as well, Paul. Thanks for thanks for this, man. I appreciate you inviting me in and and uh, just asking great questions. And this has been a lot of fun. I I too hope we can play together soon. Yeah, we got to be able to do that. Well, thanks again. Hey, everybody, that's it for Music on the Run this week, episode 24. Mr. Steve Gould, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Ow, we're out. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razo. Video editing by Ivan Sebastianov. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, October is still Marathon Month.